So one way to approach a story to evaluate how good it is, how graceful and efficient, is to ask, what is the heart of you, dear story? Or channeling Dr. Seuss, why are you bothering telling me this? That is, when all is said and done, what do you claim to live by story? I need to know this so I can see how well your non-normative aspects are serving the heart of you. That was the author, George Saunders, whose latest book is A Swim in a Pond in the Rain. Our literary editor, Anthony Domestico, got to speak with Saunders recently, and their interview follows. This is Dominic Preziosi, and you're listening to the Commonweal Podcast. Hi, Tony. It's good to have you here. Hi, Dominic. Good to be here. I'm really excited uh, about uh, bringing this to our audience. Uh, George Saunders is kind of a favorite of ours. And uh, he, of course, won the Booker Prize in 2017 for his novel, Lincoln and the Bardo. But talk to him about his new book, which is kind of a different project. Yeah. So it's a book of nonfiction. Saunders has been teaching for a number of years in creative writing at Syracuse. And he's regularly offered a course on Russian fiction. And his new book is essentially a book version of that class in which he shares some of the stories he's taught over the years and then shares some of the conversations he's had about craft and about fiction more generally. Mm-hmm. And where does he sort of get to? I mean, uh, you know, this sounds like a book that's kind of going to be of interest to maybe a lot of our listeners. And what are some of the ideas he raises in it? Yeah. So he's, as a creative writing instructor and as a creative writer, he's very interested in craft. So in the book and in our conversation, we talk about the nuts and bolts of fiction composition, what makes for a good detail, what makes for plot momentum. But really, he then uses those details to open up to questions of broader concern. He's interested in particular in how writing and reading fiction calls for a particular kind of attention, attention to language, attention to the world, attention to ourselves. And that's something that I think he gets across in the book and that comes across in our conversation. Okay, so uh, why don't we take a listen? George Saunders, welcome to the Commonweal Podcast. Nice to be with you, Tony. Thank you for having me. So you describe your most recent book as a modest version of a class on Russian fiction that you've taught at Syracuse for the last 20 years. Could you tell us a little bit about how you came to teach the Russians and why you've come to love them as you do? Sure. I mean, really, it was sort of accidental. I was uh, not teaching at all. I hadn't taught much. I was a tech writer. And then my first book came out and I got a chance to to teach at Syracuse. One of the classes was your standard creative writing workshop, which I felt okay about. And then the other was, for me at the time, a nightmare, which was a literature for writers class that we called forms class. So that was going to be me, Mr. Inexperienced, in front of 30 of these really brilliant young writers teaching some literary topics. So in that moment, I did something smart, which is I just went towards the stories that I loved, which were these handful of Chekhov and Tolstoy stories, thinking if I love them, at least I can convey my affection for them, even if I don't do it very well. So I taught that my first semester and it went really well. And it was also a great way to, if I didn't, if I hadn't read a story, I just put it in the syllabus and then voila, I'd read it. So that was it. And really over 20 years of teaching that class, there was never, I'd say a bad semester. Every semester was full of a lot of energy and enjoyment. So that led me to this book. So one of the premises of the book is 
we could say something like reading to steal, right? So you and your students read great literature, you notice the things that make those stories great, and then you think about how those strategies and moves might be incorporated into your own writing. And so that summary suggests something I think really crucial for the book, which is the connection between creativity and criticism. And so I'm just wondering how you think being a good reader can help make you a good writer and vice versa. And that's a great question. It's one that comes up every semester about a third of the way through. We'll, be, we'll have been digging into these stories and really enjoying it. And somebody will say, okay, but wait a minute, I, I don't understand how this is supposed to help my writing. And for me, the, that's a key moment to say, we're not sure, actually. We don't really know. I, we're doing a, making sort of a leap of faith that if we get into these things and, and take the stories apart and analyze and try to think of them really closely like that, that that knowledge will somehow mysteriously permeate our artistic bodies. And I think it's best to leave it at that. You don't want to think that you would, you know, literally cop a move from a story and put it into your own. It doesn't quite work like that. But something about the close proximity that these kind of readings force on, you have to go in and look at it a second or third time. And I'm pretty convinced that that it's mysteriously liberates something in a person's artistic selves. And of course, on the surface level, you're just reading more closely, which means when you go to read your own work in revision, you're applying that same improved lens to your own senses. You have a great quote in the book where you say, all coherent intellectual work begins with genuine reaction. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that alertness to our own effective responses. And then just more generally, this idea that intellectual work in some way is building off of pre-verbal kind of effective response. In a certain way, the whole premise of the book and also of my entire writing life has been that if you watch yourself reading a book or just say even a paragraph, watch yourself reading a paragraph, your mind is constantly doing these micro fluctuations of attraction and aversion or pleasure and displeasure. The writer has you with a fish on a hook and you're playing together. So my big leap of faith was to say, we can turn that thing around the other way and say, if I'm writing some paragraph, what I might want to do is imagine you on the other end. In other words, if I put this sentence in, where's my reader? If I delete this sentence, where's my reader? So that's really, it's such a simple premise. And I came to it kind of suddenly a years ago while I was trying to write a story. And it's, it basically says that the act of reading is a kind of a conversation. It's a mutual alertness festival where I am, while writing, I'm trying to be very alert to the text. What you while reading are receiving it very alertly. And that explains a lot of why we love reading so much and why we attribute so much power to it, because it's the rare occasion when two human beings have mutually committed to being alert together. And then what they're going to be alert over is this incredibly complex thing called a paragraph, which I would argue fires the neurons up in ways that nothing else in, in the world does. So for me, it was at the beginning, it was just a way of trying to simplify the writing process because I was getting so neurotic about the different approaches one can use. And it was so important to me to be a good writer. And at some point I thought, in a way, it's stand up or a love letter, two people leaning in together, trying to communicate the person who's doing the talking does have an awareness of what it's like to be on the other end. And that's going to be his most valuable tool, something like that. One of the things I most admire about this book is you're always linking up small craft details to large-scale questions about why we read and why we write. And I thought one way of describing the relationship 
might be for you to read a passage from the book in which you talk about relating the details of fiction to the broader purpose of fiction. Sure. So I, I just say this. We might think of a story as a kind of ceremony, like the Catholic Mass or a coronation or a wedding. We understand the heart of the Mass to be communion, the heart of a coronation to be the moment the crown goes on, the heart of the wedding to be the exchanging of the vows. All of those other parts, the processionals, the songs, the recitations, and so on, will be felt as beautiful and necessary to the extent that they serve the heart of the ceremony. So one way to approach a story to evaluate how good it is, how graceful and efficient, is to ask, what is the heart of you, dear story? Or channeling Dr. Seuss, why are you bothering telling me this? That is, when all is said and done, what do you claim to live by story? I need to know this so I can see how well your non-normative aspects are serving the heart of you. What is the heart of the ceremony for you? What is the end towards which writing and reading fiction is directed for you? Well, for me, I have a very simple crass answer, which is I really want to be emotionally pegged by a story. I want to be moved by it. I want to get a, a little stun of recognition or, yeah, I just want to feel that the story has seen my actual life and has some idea of what keeps me awake at night and what worries me and what delights me. So that's, for a long time, that's been my simple mantra. It's just, you got to uh, hit the reader where she lives, basically. And all this other stuff comes out of that, really. So in in any given story, the heart of it is going to be one thing. Often it's just a moment. It's the climactic moment. But as you su suggested earlier, it can also be the way that it accounts for its own defects a little bit. A story starts to be told and there's something funny about it, something off about it. At the really high levels of storytelling, even those defects are accounted for. But again, I think it's all about, I, I'm, I'm calling it emotional effectiveness. I don't know if that can sometimes get you into sentimentality, but what I mean is really earned emotion where a story stops being words on a page and suddenly is speaking to, the, to your heart, to the thing that most concerns you. Every year, the John Paul II Center for Interreligious Dialogue brings together 10 international Russell Berry Fellows to study at the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas, there to learn about interreligious dialogue and how to build relationships across lines of difference. Russell Berry Fellows live and study in Rome for one full academic year, take classes in ecumenism and dialogue, Judaism and Islam, travel to Israel for a 10-day study tour, study at the Shalom Hartman Institute, and visit the sacred sites in the Holy Land. And they participate in interfaith events with leading practitioners and theologians in the field of interreligious dialogue. The fellowship is now accepting applications from priests, women religious, and members of the laity. Applications are accepted by April 26, 2021. For more details, visit iie.eu slash berry. That's B-E-R-R-I-E. You describe fiction as a sacrament dedicated to the proposition that everything remains to be seen, that fiction reminds us of and asks us to grapple with an openness to ourselves and to others. Fiction allows us to understand others in a way that's deeper and more sustained than we're actually able to achieve in our everyday lives. So we, know, we can know characters better than or more fully or at least more sustainably than we can know people in the real world. And you have this passage in a description of a short story by Chekhov called The Darling, 
where you're describing the main character. Would you mind just telling our listeners who Olenka is and just the kind of general arc of that story? Sure. She's a, a woman. We meet her when she's quite young and she has her first love affair. And we're told two things about her. One is that she always has to be in love, which that, that covers most of us. But the second thing is that she, when she falls in love with somebody, she immediately assumes that man's characteristics and personality. So it's actually very funny. She's whatever occupation her husband has, she's an expert on that. And it's the only really defensible occupation there is. And so it starts off as a joke. And then as she goes through a sequence of such men, it starts to become a little sad and it also becomes a little alarming. So in that story, I think Chekhov is demonstrating the principle that in real life, if you're walking down the street and you see somebody, you can't help it. You make a spot judgment on the person based on whatever. And then you go on with your life. Or if the person says something to you, your response is going to come out of that initial very approximate projection. Okay, so that's life. And we get in trouble that way all the time. In fiction, you're allowed to turn on your heel and follow that person. And then the gods of fiction give you one superpower, which is you can actually leap into the person's head and you can see what he thought of you. He can, you can see what he thinks of the shop he's passing. You can get a feeling for the atmospherics inside his mind. And then you can spend eight or nine or 10 pages that might be 15 minutes, or it might be, as is the case with the darling, 40 years. So that's a, an opportunity that we don't get in real life. And so fiction slows time down. It does a little mind meld. And I would say it's a scale model for what it would feel like to become a more compassionate person. Now, it's, a, it's all kind of a magic trick. 10 minutes after you read the story, you're pretty much back to yourself again. But you use the word sacramental earlier. And I grew up Catholic and I thought that's what the, the masses, that's what sacraments are. They're compressed, intense experiences that remind you that you're not everything that you see right in front of you. You're not limited to the person that you are from day to day. There's a higher self that's available to you. It's not easy to get there. It's very hard to sustain it. But what a beautiful thing to know that there is something beyond this everyday person. I think fiction can can perform a sort of a version of the same thing. Just remind us that we are at any moment trapped by our senses and by our, this very limited mind that we have. We're not even close to being in touch with the absolute. But for just little seconds, we can get a glimpse, not really of the absolute, but we can get a glimpse of our own normal inadequacy. And that's refreshing, I think. Yeah. And you suggest that deeper understanding might become a synonym for something like love. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit more about that connection between understanding and love and the suggestion that our love is in a real way limited by uh, our lack of understanding and the flip side, a greater understanding leads to a, a greater mercy towards those around us. When I was a kid in Catholic, the Catholic Church, I received this idea that that Jesus's real superpower was exactly the thing we're talking about, that he could look at you or look at me or look at a prostitute, or look at anybody, and not have any, it, it's not the case that he would leave out the bad parts. No, he, he would, everything would wash over him. So in, in the same way that when you're, your kid that you love does something that you wish he or she hadn't done, you, that's different somehow than if somebody else's kid does it. You go, oh, she, she just threw her carrots across the room. I, I know her better than that. So that's what I'm talking about. It's just to, to say, I have, I understand the context. And in the face of that understanding of context, your judgment, your need to instantly judge drops a little bit. You become patient. And really it's just because you're seeing 
I, I would say you're seeing all of cause and effect. So you're saying, oh, of course she threw her carrots because da da da. So it gets a little confusing because we do a lot in fiction these days talking about empathy and sympathy and compassion and love. Those are all different things. But for me, the, these Russian stories just remind us that we usually judge things too quickly and on too little information. And that actually we have, often we don't have to judge so soon in real life. If I see something on TV and I make a snap judgment, the world doesn't change because I in my living room have a, an angry feeling. It's still the same world. So I think we can suspend judgment, not or, um, abdicate judgment, but, but suspend it. While you're suspending it, more information comes in and ultimately whatever you do is going to be better informed. So I think fiction is an artificial way of just reminding ourselves of that. Because in the story that we're talking about, The Darling, at least in my reading of it, you go through these different relations to Olenka. At first you're fond of her. Then she seems a little weird, like she's got some kind of psychosis. And then you see that whatever it is, psychosis or not, she's not getting out from under it. She's an old lady by the end of the story. Then you feel warm for, you know, so so the idea that you could have multiple feelings for somebody and that what's really changing those feelings and deepening them is more information on what the world looks like from their point of view. And I think that's sorely needed today because so much of this supposed information that we're getting via social media and partisan news and so on is just from the get-go is designed to agitate you and to rush you into a state of judgment. And that's actually not, I, I would argue, given our, our neurology, it's not what we're best at. We're actually really good at abiding and, and collecting information and deepening our response. We should also say that this thing we're describing as love, it isn't, it, it's not a whitewash. It, it's not, you could have a fiction about a fairly miserable person, totally fine. It's still good to feel what we're calling love for that miserable person, because then there's a word I love called granularity. So if you, if you're understanding of someone becomes more granular, uh, more detail-rich, more specific. You're actually taking a, I mean, in any case, you're dealing with projective concepts, which are always approximate. But as you become more granular, you get more and more categories and you get, you, you put the person into a more and more precise box, which then allows you to respond more sensibly. If, if someone is big, dumb jerk, what, what do you do with a big, dumb jerk? I don't know. But if someone is very nervous in public, which makes him verbally harsh, that you can kind of summon up some sympathy for that person. Maybe don't put him in public. So I think it's not, we would want to think that fiction is something that just makes everybody a good guy, makes every character, it redeems every character. That Sometimes the redemption is a little more complicated than we might think, but it has to do with having full sight of someone. It's so, so beautiful. And yeah, it's not that Christ says to the money lenders in the temple, it's okay, it's cool, you guys can just hang out there and keep doing your work. <laughs> right, he gets right, angry right. and he sends them out. So there's a great moment in your chapter on Tolstoy's story, Master and Man, and you're talking about the possibility of moral transformation. And you talk through your own experience of being on a plane that seemed like it was headed downward, that it was going to crash. And you quote a line when you're telling us that anecdote from a Catholic hymn that you remember from your childhood. And that line is, we must diminish and Christ increase. And it's a really striking line. And I'm wondering what's expressed in that line, which to me seems to be something like a, it's describing a self-emptying that actually allows for us to be the truest form of ourselves how that self-emptying that somehow enables us to be ourselves most fully happens in writing for you. 
when we think about what this self is made of, in my, I think it's mostly made up of thoughts, thoughts and rumination. That's what we mistake for ourselves. And I've just noticed anecdotally from meditation, for example, when that rumination gets quiet, you're not in a vacuum. Something else rises. Something else is there. I think that's what the hymn is referring to. As we get the the self down, something like Christ or might say Buddha nature or something comes in there. In fiction, I think mechanically what happens, I, I'm not sure I'm really interested in this and I'm not, I haven't done the work on it yet, but I think what happens is because you're trying to get into that state of alertness that we talked about before, how do you do that? By reading your own text and by trying to keep your concepts about it quiet. So in other words, your idea that this is really a good paragraph or you wrote it yesterday in a state of enlightenment, you know, just be quiet about that. Read the words. What's the energy coming off it? In that state, that's a very non-ruminative state. It might be like the way a rock climber climbs a wall. You're just really watching and your quiet mind is your best friend. I think in that state, that approximates something like a meditative state or a state of prayer. I don't think it's exactly the same. It's not as powerful, actually, because there's a little bit of ulterior motive going on. But I felt that. And I also noticed that when I don't do it, I get a little bit sad. If I'm feeling a little more neurotic than usual, if I write for two or three hours and if I can attain a state like that, suddenly something happens internally. So I don't really, it's very interesting to me that this all seems like a unified thing at this point. And I'm interested in trying to look into some of this stuff neurologically and seeing what actually is similarities between a meditative state, a prayer state, an artistic creation state, and, and so on. Finally, in your acknowledgments, you actually end by singling out two figures, Sister Carol Muha and Sister Lynette at St. Damien School in Oak Forest, Illinois. Could you tell us a little bit about them and, and how they influenced you as a reader and writer? Sister Carol was my first grade teacher, and she was known as Sister Jacinta at that time. And like any kid, I, I just went into this terrifying institutional place, not knowing what to expect. And she was so warm and loving and so much. I would actually call her like a, a an artificial mother continuation. She picked up right where my actual mother left off and seeming to really see me and be affectionate for me. And then the, that whole order was just amazing around language. We did sentence diagramming and it was very strict, very serious work. And so I, I know a lot of kids from that class and all of them across the board are really solid writers and readers. Even if they didn't end up going to college, those early fundamentals were great. And then Sister Lynette was my third grade teacher, and she did me this great favor of giving me uh, a copy of the novel Johnny Tremaine when I was in third grade. And she did it very cleverly. She, she said, um, secretively, pulled me aside and said, I, I can see that you're a good reader. And then she said this amazingly charming sentence, which was, some of the other nuns and I have been talking about you in the convent. And they're not sure you can handle this book. It's hard, but I think you can. So she handed the book over. And of course, that was, it was a done deal. I was going to read it. And it was a, it's a beautiful book stylistically. And it's the first book that ever got into my head and made me start thinking and speaking in its language. So it was a huge gift. It took me many years to realize what she had done. But I think she said, I think that you're a person who can tell the difference between mediocre prose and really good prose. Let's see if that's true. And then mm. she, yeah, a big deal. I think it's appropriate to end on that note of gratitude, in part because your book is such a lovely note of gratitude to the Russian writers who've, who you've spent time reading and the students you've spent time talking with. So thank you, George, for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you, Tony. That's a lovely way to think of that book. I appreciate it. 
George Saunders' latest book is A Swim in a Pond in the Rain. And also, Tony Domestico has talked with Saunders before for Commonweal. Their interview, A Kindly Presence of Mind, from 2017, is available on our website. This is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi. Mm-hmm.